Hello, my name is Daniel Kilburn and this is Conversations on Family Urban Disaster Planning. Our guest speakers today are Dr. Joe Alton and Nurse Amy Alton. Joe Alton, MD, is a Life Fellow of the American College of OBGYN and Retired Fellow of the American College of Surgeons. Amy Alton, R-A-R-N-P and C-N-M, is an advanced registered nurse practitioner and certified midwife. Today, today they together are the medical preparedness of advocates and New York Times, Amazon bestseller authors of various books, including the Survival Medical Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Diseases, and her latest book, which is right up the alley here, Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide. So, Dr. Joe and Nurse Amy, I'm curious. You're in a very unique niche here that not a lot of other people have dove into. What, what made you decide to go there? What was it? I know you, you probably started your medical professions in some other place at some other time, and then you dove into the disaster management field. And why did you do that? What was it that brought you there? Well, I'll tell you, you know, we have always been sort of preparedness folk in Florida. Uh, we're always more prepared, I guess, because of hurricanes and things like that. So instead of the three days of food that most people have, we have always had a couple of weeks worth, we've always had water, you know, that, that we've had stored away. We've always had uh, non-perishables, things like that, that would allow us to be able to go without power for a period of time. But then we saw right. things like Hurricane Katrina occur. In 2005, we've had a huge storm called Hurricane Katrina, killed 1,872 people in the Gulf Coast. And you may think we have dropped, we dropped the ball with regards to our medical response there, but there were hundreds of medical, uh, medical disaster assistance teams and a lot of equipment that were heading there even before the storm storm was completely over. And they found that they were overwhelmed with the number of people that they had to deal with. And even worse, the flooding prevented them and all their high technology from being able to reach a lot of people that needed their help desperately. And so we decided to make putting a medically prepared person in every family, our mission. And that I think is really important. You have to realize that a medical emergency rarely happens in front of a doctor or a nurse or an emergency room personnel uh, or, or intensive care uh, unit uh, personnel. It happens in front of a family member. It happens in front of a bystander. And rapid action by a bystander at the scene is what saves the lives of a lot of these people, especially in things like bleeding wounds. This is actually uh, at the end, we're at the end of National Stop the Bleed Month. And so we've been uh, giving classes on how to stop bleeding and hemorrhage control, things like that. And these are things that should not only be known by at least one member of every family, but I think should be actually taught in schools because we're at, point, at, at the point where society is fragile, they're active shooters, there are there's civil unrest everywhere. And, you know, there are circumstances where you may be confronted with somebody that's bleeding and you need to be able to know what to do and not be paralyzed simply by just look, seeing the sight of blood. Well, that does make sense. My background is uh, 33 years Army Infantry. I was very well versed on 
stopping the bleeding. Let's just put it that way. They, they taught us and we saw different levels of perf perfectionism, so to speak, you know, the tools changed, but we always needed to be retaught. And these are skills that are perishable, right? You have to pick up on these skills repeatedly, even though you learned it in five years, it might be different. You're absolutely right. And you know that there's uh, new technology available in the form of portable tourniquets and things like that. And then the thinking about a lot of these things, tourniquets in the past were considered to be sort of iffy. As a matter of fact, in, in World War I, a British um, medical journal called them a tool of the devil because they were oh. theoretically so damaging. But now the current uh, Committee on uh, Tactical Combat Casualty Care considers the use of a tourniquet as a first course of action in any serious bleed. And so we have, a, a, we demonstrated a lot of these in uh, some of our recent talks and we're happy to demonstrate some today uh, as a matter of fact. several of them behind you. So, so we can <laughs> actually do, do a little, little show and tell. We're happy to do that. But the thing is, is that you have to realize that in a, survi <clears throat> in a survival setting, that what happens is your mindset has to change. What is your goal in normal times when you see someone injured or ill or, or, or down on the street? What you want to do, you want to help them, number one, of course. Then what you want to do is you want to stabilize that person. You want to get uh, emergency personnel on the scene, and then you want to pass them off to the next highest medical resource. Our situation, okay. we write about what we write about it are, are situations where that is no longer existent, in which you, the average person, are now the highest medical resource left to your family. And we, in all our writings and all our books, we write as if that disaster or that situation has occurred and that you are going to have to take care of that broken bone from beginning to end. But you're going to have to take care of that person that bled out, not just by getting them to the hospital, but by getting to where the, them to where the bulk of your medical supplies are and caring for them until they're back on their feet and, and able to function. Well, hopefully they didn't bleed <clears throat> out completely. Right, right, right. Right. Just bled a little bit because <laughs> you were fast acting right. and okay, you got well, a tourniquet on. <laughs> and also, and also in just in the recent pandemic, we wrote all about things with regards to uh, how to deal with home, home nursing care for pandemic situations. So, you know, how to put together a good survival sick room. Right. These are things that we write about all the time. Okay. So let's take this, let's step back. Let's say I have no clue what I'm doing with medicine. My only basic is uh, I have a Neosporin and I have a Band-Aid and I know how to use those. Okay. And now I want to advance my skills. Where am I going to get this education in my local community? Do I have to go online? Is online the best place to be? Or can I get hands-on training? Is hands-on better than online? Or is there a combination of the two? How would I go about doing that? I think that be, using the local municipality's ability to put together classes for first responders, for SERP, you know, I think that's always a good basic start. But from our standpoint, we want to teach people more than that. We want to them to know how to deal with various types of equipment. We want them to, to know about basics about why we're doing certain things. Why are we using a tourniquet on this as opposed to just applying pressure right. on an area? Why, right. are we, why, are, why am I recommending using <clears throat> antibiotics for someone 
who may have a wound infection. How do I know that that's a wound infection going on? We teach things like that. And these are the things that you need to know. Now, we have the internet, at least at the present time, you know, is functioning. And so uh, I think there's a lot of things that you can use on the internet in terms of resources, video resources. Certainly you can find, uh, I, I actually use a lot of videos when I teach people. For example, in one of our eight hour seminars that we give, we teach our, our medic students how to recognize the sound of pneumonia on a stethoscope, oh, or the sound of bronchitis on a stethoscope, the sound of a foreign object. Or asthma. Or asthma or pneumonia, what I'm, what I'm dealing with right now. So, you know, these are, these are things that can be taught. And if you have, if you're able to hear, you can learn these things. And so these are, are super, super uh, resources that are available. And you can see actual operations. Not that I'm saying that you'll be doing a lot of operations, but you'll be seeing things like how to maybe suture, uh, 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 laceration closed, how to clean a wound, how to pack uh, a wound so that it, it doesn't bleed. How to use dressings that are meant to be blood clotting in nature. So I have these, one on ace bandages. That's right. She has one on ace bandages. Also, she has one on seven different ways that you can deal with uh, various injuries using a simple triangular bandage, yeah. you know, the Boy Scout handkerchief, neckerchief. So, right. you know, we have to include improvisation, conventional therapy. And we also talk about natural therapy too. There are a lot of things that actually are in nature that may actually be helpful. For example, cayenne powder, it will stop mild to moderate bleeding if you apply it. It burns like hell, but, <laughs> but it actually, like heck. <laughs> so, so it does, there are things in the natural world that, that are important to know about because one day, if you really believe that there may be some event that occurs that takes society to the brink, well, they're probably not going to be manufacturing some of this stuff, that high-tech stuff that we have. And you're going to have to go back to what we our ancestors did, is use plants and the things around them to simply be able to deal with the issues at hand. Okay, so is that considered homeopathic using the plants and stuff? Um, I would call it more herbal medicine. Well, we more call herbal it medicine. Okay. I, would call, I would call it more broadly herbal medicine. Yeah. Because you're using teas and tinctures and salves and um, inhalation yeah. therapy, you know, different ways. Okay. Well, let's just back up a second here. Because some of the stuff you're mentioning, like I would consider advanced. I mean, some people might not, but I do. Okay. So let's say we're getting started. So you mentioned within the community, there's resources. You said CERT, your uh, first responders, probably your college, the American Red Cross. That's a basic good place to get your first foundation on first aid training. Right. Right. Hospitals have a lot of programs. Oh, they well. do? Okay. So you can call your hospital. I said, I didn't even know that one. Okay, but that's interesting. Just go where the medical professionals are and ask them, basically, I would think. That's yeah. within your community, and they should be able to direct you, right? Yeah, actually, okay, um, so. Cleveland Clinic, which is our local hospital, and there's also Ohio Cleveland Clinic, uh, does a lot of seminars. So they have a lot of or webinars, and so they have their you know heads of the department teaching things. Sometimes it's um, on the level of medical professionals, but that doesn't mean you can't watch it and sign up for it. 
it might be a little too advanced, but you know, you're always picking up a little nugget of knowledge here and there, and it doesn't hurt to learn about different issues. And that's why we decided to write books because we find that there is a certain language that doctors speak called medical ease yeah. that is not <laughs> it's it's very, over it's, the head. <laughs> it's sort of like learning Klingon or, or something like that. <laughs> so what we did is we took all of this information and we turned it into plain English. Yes. And so if you are That's able to read it, yeah, if you, if you can read it at a fifth grade level, you can understand what we're talking about in, in terms of our, uh, our, our various books. And we try to put it in such a, and the truth is, is that it's very possible that, you know, a teenager or a young person may have to actually apply some direct pressure on a wound or may have to apply a tourniquet. This is why we've been so strong about suggesting a fourth R to add to the three R. So reading, writing, arithmetic, and maybe reduced hemorrhage might be a, a good fourth R. So, you know, teaching, teaching in school. Okay, well, let's take this in a logical progression then. So the individual's already gone within their community and they've learned whatever the basics are they can find within their community, hands-on training, which is good. Now they need to step or they would like to step up. Where would they go? What would be a logical progression on just an, another step up from just basic band-aids, uh, splints, uh, splints for your broken leg or your arm or whatever. What would be the next logical step up? So, I mean, you really can take two paths. I mean, we have a lot of, uh, of folks that have followed us through the years and they've actually ended up going into the medical field, whether it's becoming a paramedic or an EMT. Um, uh, we've had some people just even do firefighter and, and nurses, we've had a lot of men, which to us is like amazing and awesome men go into the nursing field, which by the way, if anyone's listening is a very hot place to go. I know uh, someone personally who just graduated from nursing school and her first job, if anyone's interested is making $30 an hour. So Hot off the press, not a, not a day one rookie. of experience. Rookie pay for nurses. So nursing is a great place to go right now. Um, but we've had a lot of people to so take the medical field. But uh, we've also had some folks uh, go into sort of a, a wilderness type, you know, bushcraft. And they go into the, the wilderness medicine. And there are several different um, ways to do that. There are online classes. There are also um, classes that we've taken where we flew out to a location. We got certified as um, advanced wilderness expedition providers. There we go. So long title, but it, you know, it was a couple of days and it was, it was really interesting. It was a lot of fun because everyone who was there all wanted to learn all of these hands-on things. We knew a lot of it, but again, anything you learn, you're always learning little tips and tricks that other people learned out in their field and their experience and they share it with you and then we come and and bring it back to everyone else so there's on location things that you can right. do and normally when uh you know when we're active and pre-pandemic we did yeah. lots of classes hands-on yes. just like this in which we teach people to do things uh, even uh, our how our how to suture how to staple wounds how to do wound care is available simply on USB yeah. now. And, and ours is not just the only course, there are many good courses just like that that can teach you more advanced things. And you just have to be willing to put the time and effort into it to learn these things. Because 
doing closing a wound, for example, when it's not appropriate to, for example, a lot of wounds incurred outdoors are dirty wounds. Right. You don't want to close those wounds if you, if you don't have to, because the truth of the matter is, is that you may lock in bacteria. So right. we can teach people how to throw a stitch, uh, put a staple in, but we also have to teach people the judgment as to when to do those things right. and when not to. Okay. So the best way to learn that is obviously to go to a qualified professional who's going to show you how to do that. Don't just go to YouTube and watch a video on it, right? Well, I'll tell you, I I, I I highly doubt there's any trained professional that's going to teach you that. Uh, nurses don't even know how to suture. To tell you the truth, when you're an oh, RN, they do not teach you. You're not allowed to suture. Suturing is a, a surgical um, technique. So you actually have to be an advanced registered nurse practitioner to be able to perform that um, technique or procedure uh, within a hospital. That's so what, le legally, <laughs> that's, that's what puts us sort now. of on, in our niche because we believe so strongly that people that are going to be the medics for their family, medics for their community and survival scenarios, they need to know these things. And so we actually go against the grain yeah. and against the current medical establishment and being willing to teach these things to, to average citizens right. that may wind up being responsible for the well-being of others and being the end of the line with regards to being the right. highest medical asset. Right. Knowing that if a medical modern facility exists that you absolutely need to go because if you suture your friend Fred or your child Ted, <laughs> that you can go to jail for it if you get caught. And I have heard a couple of stories. Uh, one was a parent who sutured a child it got infected when they went to the emergency room. They said, well, who sutured? I did, and that person got in serious trouble. So it is illegal to perform medical procedures if there's a modern medical society. We're, we're, when not, Katrina, we're, we're not recommending, <laughs> we're not recommending if there is an existing medical infrastructure for you to practice medicine without a license. Just use some common sense. If you can drive to the hospital, yeah. right? If the hospital exactly. is no longer existing, exactly. that's another story, right? Exactly. Okay, so, so let's look at the let's look at the tools and the tr tools of the trade here. Um, just like anything, things cost money, and people have to be prepared to spend that money for their education and their equipment in order to be proficient at whatever they're doing. So let's look at a, a bottom line, basic thing. Where do we start, and how do we level up to? And where do we level up to? How far do we think we need to go as far as buying a medical kit? I mean, do I need like a a gurney that I pull around a big trunk and suitcase or will a small pack be fine for whatever my purposes are? Well, I would say that at first uh, having a, a uh, individual first aid kit that has the materials that are able to deal with the important basic problems that you as a medic might have to deal with you know, you would have to have things like the tourniquet that uh, Amy just showed you. Something would that would be an important thing to have. Right. You would want to have, of course, uh, you want to have uh, gauze rolls. You want to have uh, various dressings. You want to have a good pair of scissors. A good pair of scissors so you can expose injuries. You want to have, of course, gloves and masks, and even more important, masks. Personal protection. In, in the last year or so, that's really been added to to a lot of standard uh, kits, but you also need things for what kind of 
injuries you're expecting to possibly see. You might see burn injuries. So you might want to have burn gel. You might want to have non-adhering adherent dressings. If you put a, a, a sticky gauze roll on a, on a burn, well, I mean, it's going to be, pain, be very painful to, to remove. So you need to have non-adherent um, types of dressings. Also, you need to have, um, like I mentioned before, triangular bandages, things that you can improvise and make them into something that would be able to deal with not only, let's say, a, a sprained ankle, but also maybe a, a slip made into a sling or something that can deal with a, a broken arm. Would you say ace? An ace, ace, ace wraps elastic wraps, elastic yes. wraps. And, you know, there's- Maybe some basic pain relievers. Right like Tylenol or ibuprofen and uh, something handy. They do make those in little uh, two pill packs, which are, are nice for our storage and also, you know, not taking up too much space. I would think of also tapes. Um, we do actually put a, a small roll, not like the giant big rolls, but they make little small rolls of duct tape. Even duct tape. And duct tape and super glue uh, were basically my father's first aid kit. He was um, in the Air Force and came out and became an airline mechanic for an old airline called Eastern, if anybody remembers that. But the only two things my dad ever took care of himself with was duct tape and super glue. Well, and if those didn't work, then, you know, it just wasn't fixable. Well, let's hope let's hope he didn't use the super glue on the planes. No, <laughs> I don't think so. Okay. Okay, so an interesting thing here. So, so we know our, our skills are perishable. How long do you think, what is the standard time frame? I know if like you're going to the American Red Cross to get CPR, that's every year. If you're doing basic aid, basic first aid, they want you to redo it every two years. What's your take on that? How often do you have to go re-educate yourself on the subject? I think that for the most part, a lot of mm. a lot of things, basic things, don't change that much. Now there have been some, there are some changes, and there are some new there's some new technology. For example, uh, you have the Sam. Uh, let's see, we have now these um, hemostatic bandages that are very okay. useful. Uh, let's see, we have a couple right? Two more. Okay. Right there. These are. Very popular, have been very popular with the military. Uh, I'm sure you, you uh, Daniel, have heard of uh, combat gauze, which is oh, yes, uh, absolutely right. And uh, there are a number of other different brands. This is Sealox. Uh, this is Kytosam. Kytosam is made by the same person that does the famous yeah, a, Sam splints. Has the name on it. Oh, that's the famous the generic. <laughs> has the famous Sam splints, and uh, they have. Very, these are very useful things. I will tell you, I have seen a video in which they took a pig, and then you have to have a you know a strong stomach for this. But they took a pig and they actually severed its femoral artery, one of its main arteries uh, that go to the leg, that serve the entire leg. And they did that, blood's pouring out, and they're sitting there watching it for 90 seconds, and then they take one of these and they pack it into the wound, apply pressure for three minutes and it stops. And a friend of mine is a buyer for um, uh, the Navy, I think in, in Norfolk. Yeah, it was the Na Navy. Right, and uh, he says that they've actually done tests in which they've taken the used one 
made a cut in the other leg and put the used one into the other leg and it stopped that bleeding too. So these things are very useful. These things are things that most people don't know much about. As a matter of fact, until recently, I don't think even paramedics were allowed to use them. Uh, but these are things that are important to have uh, as part of your medical supplies and, and to learn how to use them because they are, they are different. These, these instead of uh, regular gauze, which we have a, I'll just hold this up a while bunch, you're talking. Of, bunch of it here, instead of, besides just regular gauze, which you would basically put into a wound, and if it's still bleeding, you would keep packing new ones on top of the wound. With these, right. you would take all of them off, and you would take that and make sure that it's physically touching the bleeding vessel. And if you do that, then it will begin that process of clotting that will allow the bleeding to stop. So there are specific ways to do this. And we teach this, of course, in our classes. And we and you'll find it in, in a number of our books, these techniques. But uh, this is something that people have to be trained in. And this is a kind of training that is actually available. It's available online. It's available uh, in video form. And it's available in our, in our books. And I'm sure many other books. So no, these items here, do they have a shelf life? How long are these items good for? If I load my bag up and I stick it in the closet for 10 years and have to pull it out, is it going to be worth using? It actually would probably work. They say five years, but I think that as long as the, the vacuum packing is still good on these things, I don't see a reason why it wouldn't be successful. This one's now seven up to seven years. But th this is the Israeli bandage here. Um, and this one's just basically a pad and an elastic wrap to hold on the gauze that you've you've packed into the wound. And I mean, what what is gonna go wrong with an elastic wrapping gauze? So I think you have to think about your supplies and say, okay, logically, is this something that's gonna go bad? I understand, you know, an open can of tuna fish you gotta worry about, <laughs> but when you've got cotton gauze or, or say a silk suture, um, there's not really anything that's going to go bad. You, you just have to think about where you're store, storing it. Are you putting it in your hot car? We live in South Florida. If I put a roll of duct tape in the trunk of my car, I'm probably going to have a really hard time to unroll it. Did it go bad? No, but it got gooey and sticky and it's probably not going to easily be taken off. So think about where you're storing things. Um, if you've got a car kit, if you're going for a long car ride or if it is the summer, maybe bring it in and out of the car. I know that sounds like a pain. Um, or again, put things that are not going to degrade so much. Like a, a paper tape is probably going to last longer because it has less adhesive in it than a duct tape. Um, your scissors will be fine. All your gauze will be fine. Again, your band-aids may have some problem with the stickiness. Um, your first aid ointments are going to be okay for probably a few months, but not necessarily a couple of years. You're going to have a little less effectiveness because it's been exposed to a much higher temperature. So you just kind of have to look at these individually and, and pack your kit with the things that, that you really feel are going to last a long time and then rotate them. And it depends it's on okay your to bring them in your house and put new ones in. It depends on your climate too. If you know, if you commonly like we are down here in South Florida at 90 degrees, you don't want to <laughs> have a lot of stuff in your car. You know, you want to have right. 
stuff in the house ready to go in the car if it has to at a, at a moment at a moment's notice, but not actually in the car itself. <laughs> so we're looking at basics, common sense storage stuff, not too hot, not too cold. Don't let it get wet. Don't pour chemicals on it. Don't shake it and beat it up and rattle it all the time. And it'll probably stay fairly reasonably good for a good amount of time. Yes, exactly. I'll say, I'll say this about putting your medical kit up on that top shelf in the, in the back of the closet. Don't do it. I want you to take your medical kit out. I want you to break it down, take a look at everything in it, make sure that you know what to do with everything in it. And where everything is. And where everything is. is. within the bag. And matter <laughs> of fact, with the medical kits that we design, we tell people to take it home, break it totally apart, and then put things where it makes mo the most sense for them. Just because we put all the different items in and modules where we think they should be doesn't mean that that's intuitive for you. So always right. put things, always make it your kit so that you know what to do. Cause you know, if you're with somebody got somebody as leading, you want to be able to know exactly where that tourniquet is, for example, and you want to be able to get to it as soon as you can. So that would make common sense then is do a little uh, proactive play role play with your family, get the kit out, identify what you need, imagine something's going on and, and deal with it. That yeah, way you'll be able to learn how to do it. Yes, you're absolutely right. Scenarios are always great. And that's what they taught us when we were growing up for fire safety. Pretend there's a fire. Have your parents say, hey, we have a fire. Make sure you know how to get out of the house. If you can't get out the door because you you know that it's hot, you've done all the things your parents told you to do, how you open the window and safely get out, especially if you're on a second floor or a higher floor and where you're meeting. And then the parents are saying, how long did it take you to get here? And did we all go to the right spot and see each other? So it's all about um, muscle memory. And when you right. have muscle memory of something you've practiced, it makes it much easier the next time. So when you all learn in your family how to stop bleeding, then you practice. Little Joey is bleeding in his leg. What are we all going to do? Does anyone know where the medical kit is? Does anyone know how to get <laughs> right. that tourniquet on or how to apply pressure? <laughs> right. So, you know, and you don't have to necessarily open up all your packages and use up all your stuff. Although these tourniquets are okay to practice. These are not sterile items. Tourniquets are not sterile. So although they come in a, a clear plastic um, package, you don't have to keep them in there. It's not a sterile thing. It's okay to practice. Although this one is called the uh, combat application tourniquet and it's based on a Velcro strap. If you open and close a Velcro strap like a thousand times, you're probably gonna have a little degradation of the Velcro hooks. Um, but it's okay to use for probably the first 30 or 40. Would you, so you can practice with these. Would you, would you like to show them? Oh, we can if okay. you want. All right. You, I just cut your arm off. Oh, can I put it on myself? Uh, yep. Can you put it on okay. yourself? You have one hand left. Okay. <laughs> you got one hand left. I got the other hand over here. There's a loop. Okay. So you're going to slide that up. She's using one hand now. You're going to pull the Velcro tight. And you want to be at least two to three inches above the wound. So if it's just below my joint, you can't go on a joint. Never go on a knee or an elbow. So I'm going just above my elbow. I'm going to tighten it up. I'm going to secure the Velcro. Now, what you want to do if you have time or you think about it is you want to make sure you can't easily stick two or three fingers underneath there. 
So you want to make sure that's really snug. I didn't make it as snug as I can because if I turn this, I'm going to cut the blood off to my hand. <laughs> what hand? I cut it off. So the next, oh, okay. So the next thing you do is you're going to turn your, it's called a windless rod. Most of the commercial tourniquets have one of these and you'll twist it. I'm not going to do that again because I'm losing it. It will go <laughs> into either side, depending on how you've turned it, into this clip. Then you want to bring the Velcro strap around, go in that clip over the rod. We're securing that. And then they have a time strap that goes over that. And then when you're finished and you're done, you write a time on there because everyone who takes care of this patient needs to know what time that tourniquet was placed on the patient uh, safely. You have, according to the military, about two hours, 120 minutes before you start causing damage um, and, and really cause serious issues. So notice that she was able to do this quickly with one hand. I could have done right. it a lot faster. <laughs> things, things do change. I re, that brought me back to my, my early days in the 70s when I was being taught how to fabricate a tourniquet using a stick to tie it and then learning how to tie it off. And then we wrote on the forehead what the time was. A big T right, on the time. Right. Now, also, I would like to say that it's not a bad idea if you do have the marker or something to still put a giant T on the forehead just to alert people. Because if you're getting, you're, you're covering a patient up with a Mylar blanket for shock or because it's cold outside or, you know, if, if you're out in Never Never Land and the paramedics are on their way, the, as soon as they get there, they're going to probably cover the patient right away too. So you may need to make sure that everyone knows there's at least one tourniquet somewhere. And so that T on the forehead is a real sign. Look for a tourniquet. Don't forget it. Okay, so that, that's a good thing to know. Okay. Yeah. So, so far we've yeah. covered, we can get our basic starting, our basic education and first aid within our community somewhere hands-on through CERT, our first responders, colleges, or hospitals in general, right? Yes. By the way, I, would say, I want to just say very quickly, and if you're living in a small town, it's very possible that you could volunteer to ride with the local ambulance. And, you know, sometimes mm -hmm. they do allow people to, uh, to ride along with them and, and serve uh, in some capacity right. or at least to observe. <clears throat> so it just depends. I don't think that that occurs in large towns or big cities, but, you know, I think in smaller, smaller rural areas, that might not be a bad idea. That'd be good. And if you demonstrate a desire to learn, I'm sure most people want to help you learn anyway, regardless of where you're at, right? Okay, yeah. so, so we've got yeah. some basic education, hands-on in the community, and we start leveling up, usually probably online, or we will probably have to travel to some sort of advanced training to get that training there, right? Right. Well, yes, okay. it's not everywhere, so you, you may have to go. Yeah, there's very limited amounts of, of survival medicine education. What you probably have to do, since we can't clone ourselves yet, <laughs> And, and be in every state and every city, which we would love to do, um, you're probably going to have to swing your head towards the wilderness medicine. And that has okay. a few more openings. Again, the difference between us and wilderness is wilderness still assumes that there's somebody out there that they're either going to get to, to dump the patient off at, or somebody's going to come to them. That there's some sort of evacuation and transport system they're they're so relying they're on 
Yeah, even All if right. they're on they're the top. Anticipating a medevac. Exactly. Even if they're on the top of Mount Everest, they still know they'll have to go down a certain amount, and then hopefully someone will come in and take that patient, even though it could be a few days before that happens. They're counting on that happening. So your mindset still has to be, okay, they're going to help me learn how to get take care of the patient to a certain point, and then they're expected to go. We're thinking that transport's not happening, that evacuation's not happening. Now you've got to learn what else do you keep doing? Right. So how a, do I keep this patient alive for the right. next four or five weeks? So it's, it's a, an entirely different mindset. Things you have to be realistic about what's possible and what's not possible. Exactly. Uh, but we believe that you can deal with 90% of the emergencies that you'll encounter off the grid. Uh, if you have some equipment and you have some knowledge. And so, you know, we try to impart that knowledge. We try to equip people with uh, the materials that they need. Mm -hmm. And uh, whenever possible, you know, it, it, for example, in this, in, in this book here, this is, a, this is our uh, survival, the current oh, yeah. uh, iteration of the survival medicine handbook uh, that you will not got that one between the front page and the back page. We don't tell you to go to the hospital or go to the doctor because the entire book assumes they no longer exist. So that means that you, head of family, are now going to be basically the highest at medical assets left to your family. And so our job is to make you effective in that role. Okay, besides making me effective in that role, I should obviously think about cross-training someone else in the family in case I'm not right. here anymore, right? Sometimes the medic, sometimes right. the medic needs a medic. Yep. And so you right. need to be able exactly. to teach people what to do. You need to be able to teach people what to do. Even if you're there and you, if you, if you break your leg or if you're bleeding and uh, are, are generally incapacitated, but you can still talk, you should be able to talk somebody through how to stop your bleeding. Right. So, you know, th these are some of the things that you, that we feel very strongly cross training mm -hmm. is very important. Mm -hmm. You have to know that you have to know what, uh, natural substances in your area might actually have medical medicinal benefits. That's going to be different for every area. I mean, here we have, you know, a lot of tropical um, materials, uh, but you know, there are other places that have things like yarrow and and other kinds of uh, natural materials that, that that have a lot of benefits. And so, you need to be able to sort of integrate between natural, conventional, and trauma and make a mix of that to become an effective survival medic. Okay, so we've covered quite a bit here. I'm, I'm truly grateful that you're giving our listeners plenty of information that they should work on. They should take it to heart and start making it happen. Is there anything, even, I know we covered a lot, but there's, and I know we haven't covered some things that were brought up earlier, like your uh, natural medicines and stuff, but is there anything that you feel very passionate about that we haven't discussed that you would like to share? Well, I would like to say that I think it's important for people to have as part of their medical storage to have some kind of antibiotics available and have the uh, basically a survival medicine cabinet. And some of those things involve uh, antibiotics. Some of those antibiotics can be uh, made, uh, they, they can be purchased, purchased of <laughs> course, you know, and uh, are, some of them are necessary by prescription and some other ones are indeed, you can actually obtain 
uh, different types of antibiotics based upon what what the kinds of problems are that you're trying to deal with. You these, can get them in veterinary veter um, equivalents. Equivalents. That's absolutely right. Fish, fish and okay, birds, so, generally speaking. Okay, so I'm thinking you folks probably have a whole guide on, depending on what the problem is, use this particular type of antibiotic, right? Yeah. Exactly. They're unique and specific, right? Yeah, exactly. we have, use the same we thing. Do you have the book? Yes, we have a book that, that Do you describes have the that. I don't. Uh, Is that it? No, I don't. Okay. Of course, okay. we don't have the book in front of us. All right. <laughs> it's but, Alton Antibiotics. You have it right in there, right? And infectious <laughs> disease, but. Basically, what we what we want to do is we want to prevent, remember, prevent the avoidable deaths that may occur in survival situations. If you happen to have some uh, medications like antibiotics available, you may wind up saving somebody's life. You know, if you have a, a, an eight-year-old child that comes to you with an infection after the, you know what, hits the fan and you have antibiotics, you may have just saved that child's life. That's right. And of course, antibiotics aren't candy. They must be used wisely. Yes. And we, we discourage people from using them on themselves in any, in any situation where there's an existing medical infrastructure. But if you happen to have some in your medical storage in your survival medicine cabinet, that you may save lives that otherwise might be lost off the grid. All right, well, Dr. Joe, Nurse Amy, we're going to have to wrap it up here. I thank you for everything, but tell me and tell our listeners, if somebody wanted to contact you or get on your website or find out some more information about what they can do to prepare themselves, how can they go about doing that? Well, you can find over 1,200 articles, videos, and podcasts uh, at our website at doomandbloom.net. Doom is are the uh, disasters that can befall a populace. And bloom is a natural resilience that humans have in the face of adversity. So we are doomandbloom.net. You can find us there. You can find our podcast, over 500 of them, on Blog Talk Radio. You can find our YouTube channel has over 250 videos. It's called Dr. Bones, Nurse Amy. That's my nickname, Dr. Bones. That's Nurse Amy. <laughs> uh, and our, our many books can be found on, on Amazon. Uh, our main book is called The Survival Medicine Handbook, the 2000. Uh, 17 uh, Book Excellence Award winner in uh, the medical category and our Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease was a 2020 winner in that same uh, contest. So. All of those connections, all of those links, social media, the YouTube are all at the top banner of doomandbloom.net. I mean, actually, if you guys type in doomandbloom.com, I own that too. <laughs> it will take you there. It's just that I owned .net first. So we got stuck with that um way back when so but just remember doom and bloom doom and bloom net or con okay. both work i want to thank you very much for spending time with us and sharing your valuable information this is daniel with conversations on family urban disaster planning with dr joe and nurse amy and we are out of here <laughs>